Well, Kids Hope um, takes a referral from a teacher and uh, we, match, we match that student with a volunteer and then uh, they start mentoring an hour a week. Uh, we, I do that prayerfully uh, at the matching part. Uh, a good example of that is um, Peyton, who um, uh, lost his father tragically uh, when he was, when he, you know, he's fifth grade. He's been, dad died five, five years ago now. And Dean Smith came, came along at just the right time. One of the ways that I think that Peyton has benefited is that he has come out of his shell. Like I mentioned, when the first time I ever met him, he said he was stupid. It was his first way that he described himself to me. Now when I meet with him, I see a confident, outgoing, friendly, kind, generous kid. I did not see that the first time that we met together. I think that's like, it's been a lot, like my life has been a lot better when I, when Dean was my tutor and uh, I think he's really nice. He likes to uh, get started on the academic things right away. He's very motivated that way and get them out of the way. And then we can move on to some games, which he always wins. I can't beat him at anything. I don't care whether it's Yahtzee or Racco, it doesn't matter, I can't win. Mm, he's been helping me a lot with vocabulary and spelling, and he's been helping me um, with situations with like me thinking about my dad and stuff. When I learned that Peyton's dad had died, the first thing that I thought about was the fact of all the things that my dad had done for me and meant to me as I was growing up. And I thought about Peyton and his brothers, the things that they are not getting from that father relationship. And I know what those things are. I could fill in there. I could stand in that gap. I could do those things. And I could make a difference for all four of those boys. He's really, like he's fun, he's smart, and he let, like he does a lot of things with me and my brothers. Like, usually during the summer we go to his house for a while and we would have dinner over there. Like we were allowed to pet his horses and stuff and we were able to do a lot of other things at his house. I, you know, I want to see every kid get an even break, you know, in, in this life. Um, but a lot of these kids, they're, they're not starting out from the same spot that a lot of other kids have the opportunity to start from. Um, anything that you can do as a Kids Hope mentor, maybe you're not retired like me, maybe you don't have the time that I have. Even that one hour, that minimal investment is huge in these kids' eyes. It makes a tremendous difference to them. It's an incredible story, isn't it? Jason just told us that there are nearly 70 of you working together with just a local school to actually make a tangible difference in the lives of children. And just think about this, they're requesting 20 more. That, that will mean, that puts us pretty close to 100 of us involved in the lives of children actually right here in Holland. You know, you hear it an awful lot, don't you? The separation of church and state. And, and there are clearly lines that need to be kept separate. But the reality is love 
knows no bounds. Love knows no limits. And as Jason said, this is just one story that we've chosen to share with you. There are many more that just shows that when one person is willing to use even their time and their love and invest that in another person, the power of God is just tangibly experienced. That's the power of one. The power of one. At Central, we exist to amplify the hope and the life of Jesus to all people. We believe that the church is not to be judged or evaluated by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Kids Hope and the way we partner with them is just one example of how we exist to send. And we want more people to be sent. And when we're sent like that, we actually believe that we are to do mission as the sent ones by bringing together the power of the gospel and putting flesh on it. We believe that we exist to meet the whole needs of the world. For too long, the church, especially over the last 20 to 30 years, believed that the gospel was simply concerned with where someone spends eternity. You've heard me say before, heaven is not about pie in the sky when we die. It's actually the gospel, rather, is about meat on the plate while we wait. The gospel has flesh on. The gospel is supposed to be incarnated. It's supposed to make a difference to all people's lives, but sadly, over the last two or three decades, we became more focused with whether someone was feeding off the bread of life, understandably, while ignoring the fact that they didn't have any bread on their plate. And what we've seen over the last decade is the realization that the gospel has to be incarnated in the lives of other people. A British pastor and theologian by the name of John Stott said this, The evangelical stereotype has been to spiritualize the gospel and to deny its social implications, while the ecumenical stereotype has been to politicize it and to deny its offer of salvation to sinners. This, Stott says, this polarization has been a disaster. If you want to know why people have become increasingly disenfranchised with the church, look no further than this. And it's central, we believe that when we put flesh on the gospel, when we address the whole needs of the whole world, when we recognize that God is calling us, just like he's called Dean and 70 other people from Central to to just use our time and talents, it makes a tangible difference in the world, beginning right here in Holland. In fact, if you think about it, every major move of God throughout all of history has actually resulted in someone believing that there needs to be a flesh on what they believe, that the gospel has flesh on it. Think about this with me. Think about the, the numbers of people, the moves throughout history where this has been demonstrated. I want to pick three for you. Zwingli, Swiss reformer, lived In Switzerland, during the time of the Reformation, there was Martin Luther, the German reformer, the father, in a sense, of Protestantism. There was John Calvin. The lesser known of all of of those uh, two, or three, rather, is Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, lived in Zurich. 
And at the time that there was this great revival going on all across Europe, Zwingli recognized that the gospel had to have flesh put on it. And so he went to the the authorities in Zurich. There were so many monasteries, but there were so many orphans, and he, he succeeded in convincing the authorities in Zurich in Switzerland to convert monasteries into orphanages to take care of the orphan. See, it's one thing to sing a song about orphans. It's quite another thing to do something about it. But in this great spiritual awakening in Europe, When you look at this, there was the realization that it's not just about getting the soul of humanity right with God, but recognizing that when, in order to deal with the the sin issue in the world, we have to deal with tangible problems. Zwingli is just one example of this. There is another one, we're all familiar with this one, William Wilberforce, a man who believed the gospel, but also believed that he could not believe the gospel and read Luke chapter, Luke chapter four, where Jesus says, I have come to set people free and exist in a world where slavery was a reality for so many people. And so he fought for such a long time to actually get the British parliament to outlaw and to abolish slavery. And then slowly this movement went around the world do you know we, we live in a, in a period where slavery has never been more rampant than it is right now? People are still enslaved. But way back then, God used a man, William Wilberforce, to abolish slavery. And God is looking for a people today who will still stand up and say, it is the right of all people to be free. Liberty and justice for all. Thirdly, the father of modern missions, as he's known, William Carey. In 1787, he was at a minister's meeting in the United Kingdom. And there was a lot of focus in that meeting on the Great Commission. Go into all of the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you until the very ends of the earth. And as Carey is in this meeting, he asked the question. His question was, is it right for the ministers of the gospel to be concerned with taking this gospel into the entire world? And in that meeting, there was a man by the name of John Colette Ryland. And he looked at Carey and he said, sit down and be quiet. If God wanted to save the heathen, he would do so without the aid of you and me. See, that was the, that was the, the belief back then that God would save who he wants to save. Reformation theology, reformed theology, gone to its extreme and its worst. But over the next number of months, Carey couldn't get away from this. This phrase kept back, came back to him over and over again, the same question. And then the question became personalized, does God want to use me? And so in 1793, Carey and his family left the UK shores to sail to Calcutta. It was an interesting journey if you go back into history and look at it because they stopped on the Isle of Wight because just off the British coast because there were people, businesses that had the monopoly on trade over there and they were concerned that Kerry was going to destroy their monopoly on trade. 
It took them six months to find another ship that was willing to actually come against this trading block and take them there. But in 1793, they arrived in Calcutta and they began ministering. If you look at William Carey's life, it's a a fascinating story. It's a story of sacrifice. It's a story of how one man really believed that he could make a difference, and he did make a difference. As you saw in that slide, he put an end to the practice in India of burning widows. What's interesting when you look at Carey's life is the sacrifice that he paid. He was in India for 41 years. He lost a son to sickness while he was out there. His wife had a nervous breakdown. He faced opposition over and over again from the established church in Great Britain for doing what he was doing in the way that he was doing it. Before he went, he raised support for his ministry. But as he was out there, that support kind of waned as every missionary who's ever been on the field and, will live by, and lives by faith will tell you, sometimes our support of the people that sacrifice the most isn't as consistent as it needs to be. Carey took up a job uh, to, to not only support his family, but to pay for his ministry, and he slaved. He lost a son. His wife has a nervous breakdown. And at the end of his life, 41 years there, there were only, there were only 700 converts in a nation of millions and millions and millions of heathens. All too often, people would look at this and think, what was the point? But you know, the crowning glory of William Carey was not that he was just so in front of his time doing things that the established church didn't consider to be appropriate and hadn't even thought of. No, the crowning glory for Carey was how he used the the printing press to translate the gospel into 44 different languages. India is is a country with so many different languages and Carey oversaw the translation of the gospel into 44 languages and Hindu Bengali is probably one of the greatest translation works that he actually did. And so Kerry died with a commitment to seeing liberty, freedom for orphans, for widows, for all. He died with a belief that the message of Jesus is so important it needed to be taken into the world. But at the end of his life, he thanked God for the 700, but he kind of wondered, where would it go from here? But it's gone an awful long way from here. If you know anything about what God is doing in India, it's remarkable. And what we're going to do now is we're going to continue the story. I'm going to invite Micah to come up on stage, and he's going to continue the story and show how one man's sacrifice has made a difference, not just to millions and millions of people in India, but also to people right here in our own congregation. Micah. Thanks, Pastor Craig. I want to pick up the story in uh, the 1960s. Uh, Dr. Vigo Olson and his wife, Joan, served 33 years as medical missionaries in Bangladesh without a furlough. Dr. Olson is uh, a legend in Bangladesh and in missionary circles all over the world. Uh, In fact, New York Times likened him to the great African missionary and explorer, Dr. David Livingston. 
Vigo and Joan, uh, when they decided to start their medical missions in Bangladesh in the southeast part, they quickly realized that there was a desperate need for a translation of the scriptures. You see, pretty much all they had in Bangladesh was William Carey's translation of the scriptures in Hindu Bengali. And that was more suitable for Hindus and Buddhists. But Bangladesh was 80% Muslim. And so Carey and his wife created a pocket dictionary of over 4,600 words so that the Muslim people could translate Carey's translation from Hindu Bengali to Muslim Bengali. It is the most popular book to date in Bangladesh. Over the course of 10 years, uh, Viggo Olsen and his team ended up translating the New Testament into Muslim Bengali. What's amazing about this family, uh, Vigo especially, is that before he decided to become a missionary to Bangladesh, he was agnostic. And his wife's parents challenged him to search the scriptures. And so as a good surgeon, he began to dissect the scriptures. And he could not deny the power and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changed everything for him. Because of his work in Bangladesh, the government issued Dr. Vigo Olson visa number one in the country. And what's amazing about this family, the Olsons, is that their story converges with a family that is a part of our central community. And so I want them to uh, tell their story. So if you would welcome to the stage, Shaimal and Lily Dar. Welcome, Dars. Thank you. Here's their family, beautiful family, Shaima Lily, Jaytun, and Jasper. I'm just gonna make a quick assumption. Uh, you're not Dutch. No. <laughs> you never can tell, you know. Uh, welcome. Um, I would love for you to share uh, we just talked about William Carey and Viggo Olsen. Uh, when your story intersected with Dr. Olsen's. Actually, uh, in 1965, um, Dr. Viggo Olsen and his group, uh, including one of our doctors from Harlan, Grand Rapids, and some other missionaries from California, Pennsylvania, and all over the United States, they were in there and established a hospital. Um, in 1969, my father got sick and my mother took him to the hospital, in that same hospital where Dr. Vigo also established. And uh, after checking my father's uh, everything and Dr. 
diagnosed that he got lung cancer. So there is no hope. And Dr. Don Ketchum, who uh, gave the treatment to my father, he explained details to my father. And there is no treatment for that. And my father cried. But at the same time, uh, he presented the gospel and uh, gave the portion of scripture uh, to read. So my father did it. And next day, when uh, Dr. Don Ketchum went to visit my father again, and Dr. Don Ketchum told me all those stories, that he cried and gave him a big hug. And he said that he submitted his life to God, Jesus Christ as his personal savior. So he saved. And a um, few months later, my father died. Now, it's amazing because once your father passed away, the ministry wrapped their arms around your family. Uh, they began to empower your mother with a tailoring skill, and she would make garments uh, for the hospital. And something significant happened to you when you started attending Sunday school uh, at that mission. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, when my father died, and my mother took a job in that hospital, and we got a chance to stay in that um, mission compound. And um, I used to attend the mission school. They just started. And regular basis, I used to go to uh, the Sunday school. And when I was in eighth grade, and I uh, received a message, and I accepted it uh, through my Sunday school teacher, and I submitted my life to Jesus Christ. Since then, I was uh, thinking that, oh, this is my responsibility to now to share these things to somebody else. So time to time, I used to visit my uh, village where I born, uh, where my fatherlands and everything is, was there. It was about 30 miles distance. So we couldn't go every week or every day. Once in a while, we used to go, uh, me and my mom, and we used to visit our bigger family, my father's uh, distance brothers and uncles and others. So when I used to visit that family, uh, the family at the same time, I <coughs> walk around in the village. And one day I was working by the village and uh, there was a river of flowing through next to the village. And I saw the river was keep breaking the land and uh, already big portions of uh, land went through the river. And all of a sudden it came to my mind, my mind that, oh, why don't I pray for that? And I prayed. And I said, God, please stop the breaking and so that village can save and one day I can preach the gospel in that village. So time went by and I forgot about all those things. And six, seven years later, when I, was, I went to uh, that village back again and, and I was walking the same place and I saw the river stopped there. It's not, no more breaking, and the village is still there. And it reminded me, oh, 
I prayed for that and God listened my prayer and he stopped the breaking. Now it's my job, what I promised to him, what I asked for him. So since then I've been thinking about how he started. And I was looking for the um, opportunity to do and start it when I get a chance and I've been praying for that. It's amazing. Um, you had some experiences with InterVarsity, uh, a ministry throughout Bangladesh. Can you share some of those experiences that you had? Working among the students is fun. I like it. And not only I teach them, but I learn a lot from them also. And uh, I have to <clears throat> travel all over the country. I used to visit uh, different small groups in different uh, portion of the country and encourage them to read the Bible in their daily life. And uh, we, I conduct the Bible study meeting and I gave the leadership training uh, to the students' leaders and how to lead all those things. Uh, and I also conduct the camp program and uh, preach the gospels and uh, we communicate with the different society leaders and stuff. That's what I used to do. This is in a country that's 0 .03 at the time, Christian. Yes. One of the individuals that uh, Shaimol mentored was a man by the name of Pastor Joshi Bosch. Pastor Joshi Bosch became later the national superintendent of the Wesleyan Church in Bangladesh. When we began working with that project in 2012, there were 14 churches. After three years under Pastor Joshi Bosch's leadership and our partnership, there are now 46 churches in three years. Now, it wasn't always easy for you to be so outspoken for your faith. Uh, what, what, what kinds of experiences did you have um, because you're so outspoken? Yeah, of course not. Um, I had lots of uh, problems when I uh, started that things. Um, they burned my church and they treated us to a different way. Uh, when I moved to a big city, uh, Dhaka, and uh, it's kind of nightmare sometimes. When I get out from the house, I don't know what is waiting for me. Um, anytime they stop me and uh, harass me a different way and ask me money because uh, we have a guest house in our ministry to raise the fund for the work. Uh, lots of foreign people used to come and stay and they thought maybe we have lots of money we're dealing lots of money, and that's why they always come to me to get the money from us. And um, that's why they did lots of bad things against us, against me. When I walk by the road and by the tea stall is there, and they throw the, their tea on me, and they thought that they didn't see me, but that's what they used to do. And uh, one night, when I came out uh, from the outside and got in the office, in the evening, uh, the group of people, six, seven of them came, I believe they have arm, and uh, 
they put me in the middle and they are surrounding me and asking me money right away. Otherwise, they're not going to let me go. So finally, I managed some and I gave it to them and they let, released me on that day. Since then, I said no more. It's kind of life-threatening and uh, I have to leave. So that's why I decided to leave the country and came to America. And many people had um, firearms, firearms on them when they were threatening you. Yes. So you fled the country and uh, Lily, you thought he was gonna be gone for a couple weeks. Yeah, we actually didn't think that how long he's gonna be in the United States. He's gonna study and then he will be uh, back soon, something like that, we're not sure. Um, but every month or every week, I used to think like he's gonna be back next month or next week, that's how. And how long did it end up being? It took four years. So we haven't seen each other for four years, but every month I used to think like, oh, maybe next, next month he's gonna be back. And you had Jaytun at the time? Yes, okay. when he left, Jaytun was a year and two months old. So what were uh, some of the things that you were involved with during this time? You are in Bangladesh, single mom, uh, what are some of the things you were involved in? I started working in a school named William Carey Academy, and that was established by the missionaries from um, America. And those um, amazing people, they did a great job in there, and I loved to being with students and uh, teaching them. I was a kindergarten teacher, and it was so precious to teach those students. And also I was involved in um, uh, Bible study, student um, uh, te teaching them in Sunday school. And also we uh, usually in Bangladesh, we uh, do a weekly prayer meeting in house to house. I was involved in there too. I used to tutoring, I, I, I used to do tutoring too. So there are quite a few things I was, um, I kept myself busy with and I enjoyed those. So at one point, Shaimo, you felt that it was probably best. You were in Holland, uh, you were working for Spectrum and going to school. And at one point you said, it's, it's better for our family to be here and to work so that we can support the vision that God had given you. Yes. And, and so finally you were granted asylum. Yes. Um, yeah, as Lily mentioned that you to it takes a long time because everything changed after 9-11 and all those new rules and so I have to wait for that. So I started to <clears throat> go to the uh, Cornerstone uh, for our master's program in theology and uh, it's kind of hard and I'm taking too much long time and I did about a few semesters and finally I thought maybe it's better if I work hard and if I sponsor somebody, people still, people of our family or friends, those who are still in the field, I can sponsor them, I can support them. So that's why I decided and I stepped down from that, uh, my course. And I've been doing that. So you've been providing education for students 
and empowering pastors. And next month, I'll be going with you to Bangladesh for a camp of 70 kids. 90 kids. I'm sorry, my bad, 90 (laughs) kids. Uh, We're really looking forward to that. Um, Lily, you, the first time I met you, I came to your store. I was looking for Indian ingredients because I have a passion for Indian food and I love to make it. And there were some vegetables in there and they were vegetables from your garden. Tell us about your garden. It's actually a long story, but I'll make it short. I always loved gardening since I was a kid. I don't know, probably when I was um, eight, nine years old, uh, one verse from the Bible, Genesis uh, chapter two, verse five, somehow in my little um, age, that struck me. I thought probably gardening is a way to serve God too, because God created Adam for gardening, to take care of garden Eden. And since then, I always loved gardening. And also, when I was in Bangladesh, I have experienced, I have seen people, how poor they are, um, how much they need food and shelter and money. And those things um, broke my heart. So many times I have seen them, uh, seen people um, eating food from dustbin or trash bin. That broke my heart. I wanted to help people, but you know, when you have limited income and limited budget, a lot of time it's not um, possible when you want to help people and you don't have that much money. You think like, oh, you cannot give the money generously. So when we moved to Holland, we were looking for a house and we bought the house and first um, thing that came to my mind that I'll do gardening and I started doing gardening. And when I started raising vegetables, I thought I can raise, uh, I can sell those vegetables and save some uh, money and I can give those money generously, I can just put the money aside. That's the reason actually I started selling uh, the vegetables and last few years I have been raising um, some money and giving them in different uh, places, supporting students who go to school, supporting um, some the orphanages and ministries. Um, this year I was able to um, support um, sending some Bibles in um, uh, Africa. It's not me, but I uh, send those through Moody um, Global Ministry. So those are the things I have been doing last, you know, in the last few years. So while you garden, you're thinking about some African somewhere reading Lily's Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that every time when I hear something and I... That gives me uh, so much joy and peace. Like, I get so excited when I think, oh yeah, somewhere in Africa, somebody is reading a Bible and they don't know what that Bible went from. When I think about families in our community that are on mission, uh, the Dars come to my mind very quickly. Um, 
everything that they've done, everything that they do is for the other. Uh, they're literally laying down their lives uh, for people here and people from their hometown. And so would you just take a moment and bless God of what he's done through this amazing story through the Dar family? Let's just praise him in this moment. What you don't see in these stories are the invisible people, the people behind the people, the people that led these individuals into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of you are here today because an individual led you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I remember my father leading me to the Lord when I was eight years old and a new narrative was birthed in my life. What if we thought that that child in Sunday morning children's ministry or that child in Kids Hope or that young person that we are teaching and ministering to away is the next world leader, the next great missionary, the next leader of a multiplying movement of churches. And you'd say, wow, that, that would be an extraordinary thing. But there's really nothing extraordinary about laying our life down for something else. That's the most natural, normal thing we could do as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because it began with him. He's really the only one who had done a great thing with great love, overcoming the cross, dismantling the power of sin so that everyone would have an opportunity to have their narrative changed forever. He chose 12. They were sent out two by two and two by two became four by four. Four by four became 16 by 16. 16 by 16, sorry, that's as far as my math goes, but you get the idea. That is the exponential power of one. And now a third of the world calls themselves followers of Christ. In order for this to happen, you need to do a natural thing in order for God to turn it into something that is supernatural. It takes courage. And we need to go beyond the shores and to the ocean. Ladies and gentlemen, in order for this to happen, we have got to be brave.